Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seas of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation and the all-important chapter, chapter 19. If you are joining us by way of podcast, I do welcome you as well. If you are in the countries of Brazil, Argentina, Chile, uh, Canada, Mexico, uh, France, Portugal, Spain, Italy, Croatia, Turkey, India, South Africa, I welcome all of you into this studio where, where we have been reflecting on the importance of the marriage supper of the Lamb. It really is an interesting thing to get some of your feedback and the many observations you make, uh, one of which is how this book uh, very much applies to your life. It's just not some abstract theological exercise, but no, something that really does apply to your everyday life. It is so easy to read the book of Revelation and just be intimidated by it, huh? But what you come to discover, like any book in the Bible, is that it not only speaks to you in a broad sense, but to the very particularity and concreteness of your everyday life. Sacred Scripture, my friends, is the inspired Word of God, written by human authors, yes, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as we know, my friends, the Holy Spirit transcends time, right? And as it transcends time, it speaks to us in time today. And this is how God meets us. And this is how God walks with us. And so, my friends, reading the book of Revelation, as we have, is just not some sort of abstract theological exercise. No, but a work of love. One that has had us rolling up our sleeves and at the same time coming to discover the richness and beauty of His Word as it applies to our everyday life. And certainly, this is some of the stuff we read in chapter 19. And let us go ahead and pick up where we left off in chapter 19, and I believe it was verse 10, huh? So if you have your Bibles out and you want to turn to Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, go ahead and do so now. John writes, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, this ought to remind us of Revelation 1.17. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, John fell down at what? Our Lord's feet. Likewise, John falls down at the feet of the angel here in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. However, in an interesting turn, the angel rebukes John for falling at his feet, saying, Worship God. Implied in all of this, of course, is the belief that Jesus truly is God. You can't worship an angel. He is not God. But you can worship Jesus because he is. This phrase fell down. Where else do we see that? But in Matthew chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, in the narrative of the Magi, what do we read? In verse 10, when they saw the star, that is the Magi, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. We've talked about that, that Greek phrase. 
Huh? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why not just say they were joyful? Well, that wouldn't translate the Greek. Again, remember, the Greek is typically very economical. One, two, maybe three syllables. This Greek has multiple syllables. And so it is a Greek phrase that is hard to translate to English. And the best we can do is, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You see, my friends, joy is not passive, but it is active. It is explosive. It has the power to evangelize, hence why Pope Francis calls his exhortation on the new evangelization, the joy of the gospel. Now, out from their joy, what do they do? And when they came into the house, they saw the infant with Mary, his mother, and they fell down. They fell down and worshipped him. You see, they didn't fall down because they were tired, you know, because it was a long journey and they needed a siesta. No, they fell down because they were overwhelmed with joy. All they could do is prostrate themselves before the infant king, the God-man. They fell down and worshipped him. My dear friends, how humbling is that? They are wise men. Everyone turned to them for answers. And now the wise turn to the humble one. Why? Wisdom, my friends, always starts with humility. And as the Magi teach us, falling down in worship is a great act of humility and certainly the great act of worship. Okay, what else about this verse? Chapter 19, verse 10. Well, the angel's definition of the testimony of Jesus being the spirit of prophecy, that's an interesting phrase, reveals that all the Old Testament prophets, whether they knew it or not, were ultimately speaking of and about Jesus. In this, we can better appreciate the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, accomplishing all that God has promised he would do. And yet, while the angels' words explain the true mission of the prophets, they also bespeak a much more profound truth, for they also reveal the true identity of the Spirit. You know, the angels' explanation has strong echoes of John's gospel. Remember, same author, right? Go to John chapter 15, verses 26 to 27. There we read, as Jesus explains, But when the Counselor comes, whom I shall send you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to me, and you also are witnesses, because you have been with me from the beginning. Similarly, in John's first epistle, chapter 5, verses 7 to 8, he writes, and the Spirit is the witness, because the Spirit is the truth. There are three witnesses, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So my dear friends, in all of this, we see that any testimony to Jesus comes by way of the Spirit. What does Paul tell us in Romans chapter 8? That we do not know how to pray, but it is the Spirit of God who prays in us. My dear friends, the Holy Spirit is the protagonist of our prayer. The Holy Spirit initiates prayer. Those deep groans, those deep sighs, that is the Spirit praying within us and for us. Amen to that.
Now, as it relates to these passages from John, on one level, this teaches us that all prophecy comes through the Holy Spirit. However, on a deeper level, it signifies the close association of the Spirit with the martyrs. Remember again, the Greek word for martyr is martyria, which means simply witness. And so it is the saints that offer their lives as a testimony to Christ. And in many cases, as we know, they themselves died a martyr. In previous programs, we looked at the Trinity. We saw that the Holy Spirit is the life-giving love that unites the Father and the Son. Indeed, the Holy Spirit is the very life shared between the Father and the Son. In the Father, you have love given. In the Son, you have love received. And in the Holy Spirit, you have love shared. Because of this, when grace is given to believers, offering man a share in the life of God, it is done, how? But in the Spirit. In addition, when the saints offer their lives to God in self-donation, this too is done in and through that same Spirit, who is life-giving love itself. Love, my friends, is a force to be reckoned with because it is the very life shared between the Father and the Son. Remember, one of the Greek renderings of spirit is where we get the word energy. Huh? It is truly this life-giving energy, this life-giving force. So since the Spirit is life-giving love, He enables the saints to offer their lives in love once He dwells within them. Brothers and sisters, we are good and faithful Christians and Catholics to the extent that we allow the power of the Holy Spirit to consume us, huh? Revisiting that all-important chapter 8 from Paul's epistle to Rome, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So it is the Holy Spirit who reproduces Christ's life-giving love within us. And certainly, this takes place in the sacramental church. Okay, chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. He who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name inscribed which no one knows but himself. He is clad in a rope dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, followed him on white horses. From his mouth issues a sharp sword with which to smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Whew, isn't that a powerful series of verses? I know these verses, the coming of Jesus on a white horse, has been dressed up in, in many paintings and murals and whatnot. But what is actually going on here? Let's start with the phrase, then I saw heaven opened. This really does function as an introduction to a new section. John now turns to see the final effects of the judgment on the harlot city. Jesus is coming on a white horse. 
This should probably be understood in connection with what? But the white robes given to those whom God avenged, right? Jesus is coming, therefore, as one who brings vindication. So John's vision is one where he now sees Jesus riding in as this triumphant king. This imagery of the Davidic king approaching his bride is also found in Psalm chapter 45, which was interpreted by Jews as what but the coming of the Messiah to the restored Jerusalem. And because of this, we can rightfully say, as many commentaries do, Psalm 45 may very much serve as the background for John's description. John's vision of Christ also draws heavily from Isaiah chapter 62 to 63, which describes the restoration of Israel in terms of a marriage when the Lord comes to crush your enemies. If you were to put your finger on Isaiah chapter 62 and another on Revelation 19, you could see the parallels. Chapter 62, verse 2, we read of a new name. Revelation 19, 12, we read of what? A new name. In Isaiah 62, verse 3, we read of a crown and a diadem. In Revelation 19, 12, we read of a crown and a diadem. How about Isaiah chapter 63, verse 3? Garments stained with blood. Revelation 19, verse 13, garments stained with blood. And how about Isaiah chapter 63, verses 2 to 3, when we read of the treading of the wine presses? And of course, also in Revelation 19, verse 15, we read of the treading of the wine presses. My dear friends, Christ's judgment of the harlot city and his marriage to the bride are therefore always spoken of in terms of God's promises to restore Israel when the Messiah comes. In point of fact, the description of Christ also serves as a kind of reverse image of the harlot's wickedness. While Christ rides triumphantly on a white horse, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, she rides a scarlet beast that destroys her in chapter 17, verse 3 and 16. As the harlot had a name of mystery on her forehead, Jesus has a new name inscribed, huh? apparently on the diadems on his head in chapter 19, verse 12. What's more, our Lord's appearance also echoes the description of him in Revelation chapters 1 to 3. This is something that, again, Michael Barber draws out. And I love this juxtaposition. In chapter 3, verse 14, what do we read of? But the faithful and true witness. Chapter 19, verse 11, the faithful and true. Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Chapter 19, verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Chapter 2, verse 17, a new name written on the stone which no one knows except him who receives it. Chapter 19, verse 12, he has a name inscribed which no one knows but himself. Chapter 1, verse 16 and chapter 2, verse 12, speaks of from his mouth issued a sharp two-edged sword. You just heard the verse, chapter 19, verse 15, from his mouth issues a sharp sword. Chapter 2, verse 27, he shall rule the nations with a rod of iron. Chapter 19, verse 15, to smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. My friends, why these connections? Well, in chapters 1 to 3, 
Christ promises that he will surely bring condemnation unless the faithful of the seven churches repent of their deeds. Here, John shows that Jesus did not issue an idle threat. He will be true to his words. Just like Jerusalem, each of the seven churches will receive judgment unless they reform their lives. And how important is that? What did I say from the outset? That these verses, although they be rich in their symbolic imagery and caught up in all of this great liturgical context, have very specific practical points for us. That essentially when Jesus says something, he means it. And because of that, we better reform our lives. And we should say something else as it relates to repentance. The word repentance comes from the Greek metanoia, which literally means to change one's heart, to change one's mind, to change your direction. The word metanoia also speaks to contrition and at the same time, by God's grace, resolution. And so in the light of that, could we not say that our resolve is going to be only as strong as our contrition. You know, we go to the sacrament of confession, and we pray, and we do an examination of conscience. We go into the confessional, and we pray our penances, and we move on. And has the sacrament of confession become so routine that we don't pray with as much conviction as we once prayed, or we don't examine our conscience with the same conviction that we once examined our conscience. What am I talking about here, my friends? Well, again, if we want to radically change our lives, we must steep our prayer, our examination of conscience, and our confession with a contrite heart, that indeed we are deeply sorry for offending God. We are deeply sorry for sinning, and out from that sorrow, out from that contrition, we are more firmly resolved to change our lives, no matter the obstacle. I'm afraid, and mea culpa, Lord knows I have slipped into this, that our trips to the sacrament of confession have become far too mundane, or our times before God, when we repent of our sins, has become far too mundane. We have to understand that we are sinners and we are in need of God's mercy. And out from that merciful embrace, God calls us to change our lives and to change our lives for the sake of the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Okay, how about verses 17 to 21? Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly in mid-heaven, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who sits upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence had worked the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. And the rest were slain by the sword of him who sits upon the horse the sword that issues from his mouth, 
and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Here again, we continue to have these very provocative images and signs and verses that maybe have us scratching our head a little bit. What's going on here? Well, the invitation to the birds to come to the supper of God, in which the wicked will be devoured, is a parody, of course, of the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In fact, several sacramental parodies are going on here that may be found in John's account. Just as in Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, the new Jerusalem is connected with the river of the water of life, a baptismal image, so too the harlot city sits upon many waters, as we read in chapter 17, verse 1. The harlot is drunk with blood of the saints and the blood of martyrs, and her flesh is later eaten by her foes, parroting the Eucharist. Likewise, the followers of the beast are sealed, just as Christians are sealed with a mark and baptism. What is Satan's function, my friends? His function is to take the truth of God and misshape it, misform it, and plagiarize it, presenting it to us as something that it is not. So essentially then, all of what Satan does is a parody, is a hijacking, we could say, is plagiarism. What's more, as Michael Barber reflects, the wicked are divided into seven categories, recalling the, what, sevenfold judgments of God throughout the book. This passage also mirrors Ezekiel's vision of a similar feast, wherein the wicked shall be devoured. If you were to flip to Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 17, what do you read there? Listen to, to this verse. Speak to the birds of every sort and to all beasts of the field. Assemble and come, gather from all sides to the sacrificial feast which I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast upon the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. So in this verse, what do you have? But the beast and the kings united with him will receive judgment. Moreover, the general context of Ezekiel and Revelation are strikingly similar. In Ezekiel, the feast is called for the sake of God's holy name. So as we read in Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 7, the nations will know that I am Lord. This is uh, paralleled here as the great supper of God is preceded by the coming of Christ, who comes with what? A new name, which as verse 16 states, is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, while chapter 17, verse 16, envisions the beast turning against the harlot and devouring her, an image of Rome destroying Jerusalem. The idea here is that it is Christ who ultimately defeats them both. The alliance that was formed to kill Jesus, Pilate, the Roman governor, and the rulers of Jews, is now judged. This is the battle that's not only mentioned in the verse we just read, chapter 19, verse 19, but also in chapter 16, verse 14, and and one we will read uh, later on this week, chapter 20, verse 8. And this is apparent from the fact that all three contexts speak of the kings of the earth gathered for war. All those who are associated with the beast, therefore, receive the what? Judgment of God. 
My dear friends, the description of God's condemnation here in Revelation chapter 19 is different from that in chapters 17 to 18. There, the battle is fought between earthly powers, resulting in earthly consequences. The harlot city is burned with fire. The city becomes a haunt for animals. Her wealth is obliterated, so on and so forth. With the exception of the birds who fly in mid-heaven, isn't that what we read? (laughs) Eating the flesh of the kings. The judgment here is depicted in much more spiritual terms. The battle is fought by God's armies from heaven. The beast and false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. And the wicked are slain by the sword that comes out of Christ's mouth. I made the point last night that in the liturgy, earth and heaven are united. And they are united because, my dear friends, we need to be equipped for the great spiritual battle. The battle between heaven and earth flesh and spirit, the battle we face each and every day. So as Paul reminds us, we are to put on the armor of God, which always starts with the sacramental life of the church and with a vigorous life of prayer, a vigorous life of prayer. What does James say? But the prayer of the righteous man is the most effective prayer. The prayer of the man who prays with conviction is the most effective prayer. The prayer of the man who prays with the confident assurance that God will come through is the most effective prayer. So let us steep ourselves in prayer. Let us steep ourselves in the sacramental life of the church. Let us steep ourselves in that intimate embrace in the Eucharist, and we will be well on our way to battle the adversary as he prowls the earth like a roaring lion, as Peter reminds us, seeking to destroy souls. All right, I'm looking up at the clock, and we are out of time. Let us go ahead and close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening where we have had the opportunity to reflect into the richness of your word, to reflect into the beauty of your word. Heavenly Father, to reflect into the goodness of your word, that when we spend time with your inspired word of God, we do indeed begin to see Uh, the truth, the beauty, and the goodness that indeed transcend time. And we ask that you equip us with the necessary armor and strength in grace and prudential decision-making to overcome the adversary, that you arm us with the grace necessary to become the person that you are calling us to be. And we are mindful that where we go, Satan does prowl like a roaring lion but that we know in the end you win. And this is our joy during this season of Advent. And so as always, we turn to um, Mother Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.